Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, March 19th, 2023, we continue our series titled, Knowing Jesus, the Gospel of Luke. Today's sermon, Jesus the Son, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. We see Mary and Joseph submitting to the Lord by following his law. We see Simeon serving the Lord. And we see Anna ultimately speaking of the Lord because of who she found him to be. In the same way that each of them were faithful, let us be faithful to what God has called us to. We come in this place, get encouraged, get motivated. Uh, We get revved up to go preach the gospel, but then we leave him here. Let's not do that. When we leave today, let's go out into the world, into our workplace, into our community, into our home, into our gym, country club, restaurant, wherever God has you, be faithful and speak of him. To who? The ones who are cleaned up and look like they'll respond? No, to all nations, to everyone. Open your mouth and speak of him. Tell people who he is, what he's done in your life. Speak of who you know Jesus to be and see what might come of it. Our world needs hope. Would we speak of him? Hey, I don't know about you guys, um, maybe reflecting back upon your childhood, I, I recall a time, uh, well, many times, that uh, I was uh, not picked up at school. And, uh, and just that moment of watching everybody kind of leave, because this is, this is going back to the early 1970s where uh, you, know, you didn't have a cell phone, you couldn't call anyone, so you just started your journey home. Um, uh, a long walk home. It was funny because the other day I was um, reminiscing about how far a walk that had to have been. In my mind, that walk uh, was hundreds and hundreds of miles. <laughs> uh, it turns out it was 2.1 miles from my elementary school to uh, my front door. And I remember just the apologies that would come from my mother um, uh, for forgetting me and I thinking in my head that there's no way I will ever do this to my children. And of course, I remember the first time that I forgot to pick up my kids uh, from school and I get that call uh, from a a school administrator saying that my girls uh, were in the office and they had to do uh, this hour and a half bus ride loop to come all the way back. Uh, and sit there, and at that point, I was like 45 minutes drive away uh, from where they were, and so I was just, it was one of those humbling. Those are moments that are just incredibly embarrassing, and I, I'm sure some of you are out there saying, man, what a horrible human being. Who would do that? You did it too, right? So we all understand that we have these moments, right? But it's, it's, it's when you forget them that's embarrassing, but when you lose them, when you lose them at a fair or uh, at a theme park or, uh, or at the zoo, as my illustration would be this morning, uh, you, you are distressed. You are in full panic. And I remember when we lost one of our daughters at the, at the San Diego Zoo. And, and Jill and I are running around frantic. We have, the other, we have the other two kids with us at that time. And we're trying to figure out where did we lose her? Where did she just disappear? And, and just the sheer panic 
that is setting in at this moment, right? And of course, you know, my mind is running towards, oh my gosh, this is going to be a very special dateline or a 2020 or a 60 minutes episode about horrible parents who have lost their children, right? You're entrusted with one thing. You come to the park, you see the animals, you leave with all of your kids. <laughs> Man, we're just in pure panic. And of course, we found our third uh, of four daughters uh, in, the, in the snake room, which was ironic because um, she hates these things. She still, as an adult woman today, hates these things. But this is where she found herself in being uh, lost at that particular moment. But the reality was is that her mom and I uh, were the ones that were lost. And so today our story in Luke 2, verses 41 through 52 is going to take us to a place where we find Jesus speaking and teaching and, and doing all kinds of wonderful things in the temple. And he's only 12 years old at this time. This is a moment that we kind of look at and say, wow, a 12-year-old. And I think we've all had those moments from the mouths of babes, from those types of things. But this is distinctly, uniquely different Jesus is going to be communicating in a way that is well beyond his years. And so with that, let's just pray before we jump into the word. Our Father and our God, Lord, we run to you. We come to you and we just say, would you help us to see your truth? Help us to see the wisdom of your word. Help us, Lord, to grow in your grace. Help us to grow in better understanding of your son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we start in verses 41 and 42. Luke tells us, he says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Well, the custom that they're in is the Passover, the feast of the Passover. This is the celebration of Israel being released from Egypt. It is the exodus. It is the, it is the time that they get together and celebrate that they are not in prison. They are not enslaved anymore. The fact that this incident happens when Jesus is 12 is probably significant. Because as a 12-year-old, what's happening in his life is that he is going from being a boy to a man. And in the custom of that time, at the end of his 12th year, that would be when he would grow into bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah just simply means to become a son of the commandment. His father, Joseph, had no doubt been teaching him the law all of his life, but at this moment in his 12th year is when he would transition to going to synagogue, going to temple on his own. And he would begin to grow in his wisdom and understanding of deeper and deeper of God's word. But we're gonna see a scene here where Jesus is significantly advanced. It's at this moment that Jesus wants to demonstrate, even however subtly, uh, for those who had eyes to see him, that he was no ordinary Jewish bar mitzvah. He ultimately would be seen as profound amongst not only ordinary men, but amongst the scribes and the Pharisees of that time in the temple. What we see here is that Jesus has a unique, unique relationship with God. But as we go on in 43, 
It says, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. This is kind of like driving from Phoenix to San Diego and then realizing your kid's not in the car. They're a day's journey when they realize that Jesus in this caravan of cousins and aunts and uncles and family and friends and all kinds of people that had made the journey to Jerusalem for this feast, that Jesus isn't there. The panic that must have set in. They have at least a day's journey back to return. The difficulty, of course, is that they don't know specifically where he is. Imagine if you had to find your child but your only direction is that they're somewhere in Phoenix. There's a couple of things that seem to stick out to me here as a high view of this. First, there is that Jesus' apparent, it's only apparent disregard for his parents because he elected, as it said, to stay behind and they did not know it. It seems like there's a disregard for their time and for their feelings. I'll show why there is not. But second, there is this implicit uh, faith that Mary and Joseph have for their 12-year-old son. Their knowledge and awareness that the angel, as we had several weeks past, Gabriel had appeared and explained to Mary that she would become with child. And she knows specifically who this child is based upon the angel of the Lord. But as we continue here, we start to realize in, in, in 43 here, or actually not, uh, as we go to 46. So in 46 it says, after three days they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. This sentence here, the sentence here in 46 and 47 really causes my mind to go down all kinds of places. I'll try to narrow my focus here. But the the one is the relationship between teachers and students. Just as we have witnessed here today in, in our celebration of Mark and Mary Beth, they have been great influences along the lines of a great number of people and continue to be so. But the relationship between teachers and students and the role of the student for listening and the role to question, to question everything, but ultimately to apply the truth of God's word in wisdom in our answers. Another is the mystery here of how it is possible that the divine that Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, and his human nature unite in one person. How do these two character attributes unite in one person? If he is God, how can he increase in wisdom? As it will talk to us in verse 52. Finally, this sentence that sparks the most to my mind is really a scene that will take place 18 years later. 
And it's when perhaps some of these very same teachers who will gnash their teeth at the boy's wisdom and chant, crucify him in the very same city, in the very same place. Verses 48 through 52, the narrative here goes into telling us a bit more. It says, and when his parents saw him standing in the temple and all these things that he was doing, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he just spoke. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. It's an incredible scene that's taking place here. I know that the stories of these things, remember Luke is being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Luke was not a firsthand witness to the childhood of Jesus. He's telling the story, he's telling the narrative as God has inspired him to do so. But it's also possible that these stories have been passed down from generation to generation. In fact, just getting together as a family, maybe at family events, it never ceases to um, end that my children feel like they need to remind me of when we lost Allie at the San Diego Zoo. (laughs) And maybe that's what's happening here. Like, hey, mom, dad, you guys remember when you lost the savior of the world? (laughs) Remember the angel came and told you you would bear a son and he would be the savior of the world and you guys lost him? (laughs) You can hear the family stories to a certain extent. But what he says here is, behold, your father and I have been in great distress, likened to that of the zoo searching for your child. It wasn't the embarrassment that I lost her, it was the fear of the unknown. It was the fear of not knowing where my child was, as I'm sure it was for Mary and Joseph in the three days, right? We lost Allie for probably seven minutes. It seemed like three days. But her son was lost for three days. It's apparent to us that his submission to his parents, in fact, did have certain limits. His father in heaven was the sole recipient of his absolute allegiance. And even as his father and his mother on earth received his real and substantial respect, as the savior of the world, we come here in this story within an earshot of a tension. This tension that wants to pull you multiple ways. But when Mary finally finds her 12-year-old after three days, she says, probably in an exasperated voice, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. 
But it's interesting how Jesus responds. Why were you looking for me? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? You see, his parents didn't understand at that time, but the saying shouldn't be lost on us now, that Jesus would be all about his heavenly father. And that possibly with what you know from what Gabriel had told you, the first place you would have looked would have been in his father's house. His highest and final submission was ultimately to heaven. It's a submission on earth that is, however proper, would not keep him from obeying his father. There are so many things in our life today that are so proper for us to do, but they oftentimes yield for us a denying of what the Father wants you and I to do every single day. It's proper and acceptable to be passive and not share the gospel with the person on your left or your right, but that is not what our Heavenly Father's business is about. It doesn't matter what the world tells you you ought to do, It matters what God's word tells you you ought to do. He was gone for three days. And ultimately, he submits and goes to Nazareth with his parents, his earthly parents. And he does this because his heavenly father was the one who told him, honor your father and your mother. We must find ourselves compelled by the gospel, by the truth of God's word, to go and tell others of our heavenly father and the glory of his eldest son, our big brother. Let me make four observations on the scripture here today. And we all know, right, we've been in narrative for some time now, that there's no commands, there's no imperatives There's a story, but we can learn from these stories. Here's what I take away from this. Number one, Jesus' love for his father's law. Jesus had a love for his father's law. Remember, Luke is writing to a character named Theophilus who should understand that Jesus knew and loved the law from a very early age of his life, as Pastor Thomas talked last week. And that in the very city where he was crucified 20 years later, he was approved and accepted and liked and even obsessed over at the age of 12. The law itself, since its inception, has always pointed us to Jesus Christ. We look at Romans 10.4 that says, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. And as a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. It is the love of Christ and Christ's love of the law and his perfect fulfillment of that law that allows you and I to sit here today holy and blameless, not because of ourselves, but because of the works and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The law of Moses 
is absolutely something that humans are incapable of keeping. Even Galatians 3.10 said to us, for all who rely on the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Without Christ, we are cursed. For only he is the one who has satisfied the law. We know that we cannot meet the demands of the law. And we can't do this on our own power. Augustine was the one who coined the phrase, I cannot not sin. The only way that I can resist the temptations of life is when I surrender to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I, in fact, trust in his works and his righteousness, and I live my life not based upon my own works or my own merit, but upon his and his alone. Matthew 24, 36 says, of that day, an hour is coming. Whoops, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. The second point here is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. It's important for us to understand the humanity of Christ, that Jesus himself was tempted and tested in all the ways that you and I are tempted and tested, but he perfectly fulfilled the law under that temptation, under that testing. Our text has these important implications for understanding the divinity of Christ, that that he is God. And it's what helps us understand what Paul meant in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 7, that says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? Well, one example of what he emptied himself is omniscience, his all-knowing. Because the text here tells us that he grows in, in, in understanding and in knowledge and in wisdom. So in his humanity, he needed to grow in his wisdom and understanding. Matthew 24, 36 says that Jesus, of that day and hour, no one knows. No one knows when Jesus is going to return. And it says, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, who is Jesus, but the Father only. This is an example of Jesus showing that he emptied himself of his omniscience, his all-knowing characteristic. I don't know when I'm coming back, but I do know that I am. We see in a similar text that Jesus is not just playing some sort of game with the scribes and or the Pharisees in his questions. His questions in the temple are to gain insight, to gain an understanding In fact, that's what verse 52 says to us. He increased in wisdom, the application of truth. But it's not easy to imagine how Christ can be God and not be omniscient, not be all-knowing. But somehow, some way, in a mystery here, the incarnate Christ was able to somehow bracket or limit the actual exercise of his divine powers. when we start to realize that basically the motives and the will of God are within Jesus, but the powers of knowing everything and all things and the infinite strength of God is somehow being restrained 
I don't know how. His all power was potential and thus he was God, but he surrendered their use with to be fully man. It what leads us to this position of knowing that, that our child that is standing before us in the temple is not so different than the children who stand before you now. But it helps us to understand that he was fully man and he was fully God. Point three, or observation number three, is that Jesus was increasing in knowledge and understanding. We can grow in knowledge and understanding. I pray often that we would grow in grace and a greater understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. This, I believe, is the greatest goal for us as individual followers of Jesus Christ. That we would learn daily how do we in fact apply the truth of God's word to every situation, to every circumstance. And that we would do so with grace, with charity. Jesus was increasing his knowledge and understanding. This brings us to this kind of third topic that's triggered by verses 46 and 47. I think we can learn something here. Because Jesus related with these teachers. There's four things that I see that he talks about here. Number one is that he sought out teachers and he sat in their midst. He joined their lives. This is the ultimate disciple maker program that Jesus himself would seek out wisdom from others. He would sit in their midst, he would be immersed in their life, and he would listen intently to the things they said. And thirdly, he asked questions. If you lack clarity on anything, there is no offense to ask a question. And fourthly, he gave answers. So Jesus sought out teachers, he sat in their midst, he listened to them, he asked questions, and he ultimately gave answers. What I want to infer from this is that the Son of God sought out teachers, he listened, he asked, he gave questions, he gave answers about the things of God, and therefore ought the people to seek understanding, especially those who are preparing for any kind of ministry. And every single one of us is preparing for ministry, because the ministry of God's word must go out. The church itself is a place where the saints assemble and we join together, we worship and we fellowship, we break bread, we pray together, we do all these things together, but never lose sight of the charge of every single one of us in this room to go therefore and make disciples. But like the Pharisees, we have this tendency to stop growing to stop growing in our awareness of God's holiness while we simultaneously seem to stop in our awareness of our sinful desires. We shrink the cross and we fill it with wedges of performing like we're the ones that are holy or pretending that we're not sinners at all. I think tremendously that the church has set this example out there that it is a church that is wagging its finger at people. 
I'm not talking about Highland specifically, but the church in a universal sense. People are constantly, my father, before he passed away, were constantly saying, I don't really like the church because it's filled with hypocrites. It is, Dad, and there's room for one more. (laughs) It's important for us to understand that every single person in this room is a sinner and has fallen short of the glory of God. We're not out there as some sort of moral majority wagging our finger at people, but we're out there like Anna telling the story of what Jesus Christ did. He changed me. He changed you. He gave you eyes to see and ears to hear. And if Jesus would sit and learn amongst teachers and listen and question and give answers, I think the simplicity of it is is that we should too. If the Son of Man did it, then why aren't we? Fourthly, Jesus said, I must be in my father's house. I must be in my father's house. You see, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been looking for you anxiously, with distress, with pain, with great anxiety, with all these things. And he said to them, why is it that you're looking for me in the first place? Did you not know that I would be about my father's house? Some interpretations will use the term business. Did you not know that I would be about my father's business? I could only be about him. I can only be about his business, his plan, his purpose. And sometimes this plan, sometimes this purpose is going to put us into a difficult situation where we're doing the very thing that others don't want to see us do. Like share the gospel at work. Like share the truth about what's going on in our families. About sitting down and actually being truthful rather than just simply replying, no, everything's good, we're good. Everything's great, things are wonderful. When I know on the inside, and you know on the inside, that your whole world is coming apart because at that particular moment, you are searching for answers that are of your own, not that of your heavenly Father. He said to them, why did you seek me? You see, the last statement that he made They didn't understand. This is Luke's way of saying to us as a reader, there's something more here. There's something more than meets the eye. Here's what I think the point is. Flash forward 18 years from now, when Jesus will be telling his disciples, the 12, about his impending death. Luke 18, 34, it says, but they understood none of these things. The 12 understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what he was saying or what he said. You see, they were searching and searching. Mary and Joseph. And finally, they turn him up at the temple. It poses the question, where did they search? Did they go to the playgrounds? Did they go to the local swimming hole? Did they go to the marketplace? Did they go to the bakery? Where did they go to search for him for these three days? You see, Jesus answers, you shouldn't have had to seek for me at all. 
Because you know, don't you? Don't you know that there is laid on me this inner necessity to be about my father's business? Did you not know this? You see, I think this is the main point. And the main point probably lies between a simple contrast of of communication. Mary says, your father and I, and Jesus answers, my father. Did you not know that I'd be about my father? Your father and I have been searching for you. You see, the message to us today is not about your father or my father. It's about our father. It's all about our father and to recognize that Jesus is in fact our big brother. We sit here today as brothers and sisters in the heavenly realm. Jesus had chosen at this kind of critical or crucial stage of bar mitzvah on the brink of his manhood to tell his parents in the most unforgettable way. Do you guys remember when you lost the savior of the world? This unforgettable moment is revealing to them so that they will always remember this that Jesus knows who his heavenly father is and he understands what his true mission is all about. This is what Simeon last week with Thomas meant in Luke 2.35 when it says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also Mary. Can you imagine such a scene as a parent to watch a group of people crucify your baby boy. Oh, the pain that must have been in her side, the distress, the anguish, the difficulty to watch such a gruesome and horrible thing take place. This is a precursor. This is preparing her to understand that the sword that will pierce his side will pierce hers as well. And that that little boy will lay in a tomb for three days and three nights and he will rise again. To go through the pain and the anguish and the distress of losing your child and not knowing where that child is is a reminder to us all that we must have faith in the plan and the purpose of God the Father. This three-day vigil that Mary and Joseph are on is a foreshadowing of this experience. She said, your father. So it seems to me that the main teaching of the passage is showing us this unique sonship that Jesus had with his heavenly father and that his mission will require him such a devotion to God's purpose so great that it takes precedence over the closest of family members. And maybe that's where you or I are at today. That God is putting it upon our hearts saying, I have called you to a much higher purpose. I have called you to a much higher plan. Let the dead bury the dead. Come and follow me. To follow Christ for he followed his heavenly father to the absolute critical certainty of the law. And because he has done that, 
We are not bound to that law, but we are bound to this law of love. Jesus must show his calling, even if it brings pain and misunderstanding. I hope today that the narrative of this has you walking away on your knees, so to speak, not with your father or my father, but with our father who art in heaven, because holy, holy, holy is his name. Jesus sets the model of the gospel for us to follow. He fulfilled the law and the Father and the great standard that God the Father gave. We understand, right, that no man, Jesus said, no man can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws them unto me. Oh, would we run to the Father as Jesus would do. So many people out there need to hear the good news, the testimony of how God changed you. Not because of some sort of self-righteous or, or sort of moral authority. I want to encourage the church in a universal sense to not be filled with so much moral authority, but to be filled with the love of Jesus that Jesus had for his heavenly Father. Church is about equipping each other to follow the Son, to live like Jesus, to run to the Father, that all the glory of our running and our efforts would be to our big brother, to Jesus Christ himself. For he is both the model and the standard by which we live. There are some people here, I know we have our, our, our follow Jesus team back there. I can't encourage you enough that if today God has put upon your heart that I've got to follow Jesus, whether it's in a new way or a brand new way, go talk to someone. Come talk to me. Come, come find Pastor Kevin. Come find Thomas. Come find Pastor Bob. Come find Mark Yule. Come, come to someone, to our prayer team, and tell them what God's doing. But I want you to hear me so clearly here, right? I know that we get in this habit of praying prayers and calling people to pray a prayer and all these things, and I'm not against that. So I want you to hear me clearly in this. But look at me. You are not saved because you pray a prayer. You are not saved because you attend church. You are not saved because you were baptized or you were raised in a Christian home. You are saved not by a what, as Pastor Thomas said, but by a who. You are saved by the person of Jesus Christ. Look to him and live. Look to him and know that he is God. And know that he was tested and tempted in all the ways that you were tested and tempted. The Bible says he sent his son that whosoever believes in him, the person of Jesus Christ, that person will take up their cross daily and follow him. To sacrifice oneself, to deny yourself, brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. The good news is that you will deny yourself and put your wholehearted trust in God the Father and his plans for you and be used by him to advance his kingdom. And like Anna, we learned last week, take this, take this news and go tell everyone. How much do we have to hate people that are on a path to hell to not tell them about the train that's coming? So quickly. Even this weekend, one of our 
dear saints, one of our sisters here at church, they usually attend on Thursday nights, went to be with the Lord in an automobile accident. Would you share the truth of what God's done? Remember, there's these two things that stand out. They seem inconsistent. Jesus' apparent disregard for his parents and feelings has nothing to do with his disregard for their, for their feelings. But him living out the truth that Jesus was killed before his mother and that he would lay in a tomb for three days and three nights and that he would be all about his father's business regardless of the pain and the anguish that it would cause around him. He would give his life as a living sacrifice. Can we not do the same? And second, that there is this implicit faith that Mary and Joseph have of their 12-year-old son. Can we not for once, and I'm speaking to myself, I hope that you guys understand, every Sunday that I'm preaching, I am not preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself and you just happen to be here. This implicit faith that Mary and Joseph had in their son to trust the plan of God is going, I'm promising you, it's going to come with distress. It's going to come with pain. It's going to come with anguish. But put your hope and your trust and your everything in Jesus Christ and run to the Father. Brothers and sisters, our prayer team is down here. Um, The Follow Jesus team is back there. Come talk to someone. Come share what God's doing in your heart. Let us encourage you or provide you with possible next steps. Let us, in fact, shepherd you to run to the Father with all praise and glory to the Son. It is my earnest prayer for all of us, including myself, right, that we would grow, that we would grow and grow and grow in grace and a better and better understanding of the Son. To the glory of God, may we all live. Amen? Amen. I love you guys. Minister to one another. We'll see you next week.